Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Each and every week, our podcast, uh, known as Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, will introduce to you, the listener, one of the 54 parashiot, one of the 54 weekly Torah portions that the Jewish community reads. It is read on a cyclical basis, uh, ending with the book of Deuteronomy and beginning shortly after the holiday of Simchat Torah. This week, we are going to discuss the portion known as Noah, which is found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, through chapter 11, verse 32, one of the longest parashiot, one of the longest uh, weekly readings in the Torah. It is, of course, a story that many of you learned as children. Let me remind you of some of the highlights. God instructs Noah. The Torah says that he is the only righteous man in a world consumed by violence and corruption to build a large wooden teva, an ark, coated within and without with pitch. A great deluge, says the Eternal, will wipe out all life from the face of the earth, but the ark will float upon the water, sheltering Noah and his family and two members, male and female, of each animal's species, and the Torah then goes on to say, and seven of the pure species, unidentified um, at this point what the pure species are. As you may remember, the rain falls for 70 days and nights, and the waters churn for 150 days more before calming and beginning to recede. The Torah tells us the ark settles on Mount Ararat. And, Moses, and Noah dispatches a raven and then a series of doves to see if the waters were abated from the face of the earth. Noah builds an altar as he leaves the ark and offers sacrifices to God. God swears never again to destroy all of humankind because of their deeds and sets the rainbow as a testimony of his new covenant with humanity. God also commands Noah regarding the sacredness of life. Murder is for the first time in the biblical text deemed a capital offense, and while human beings are permitted to eat the meat of animals, they are forbidden to eat flesh or blood taken from a living animal. Noah plants a vineyard and becomes drunk on its produce. The story of this parasha concludes with the story of the uh, Tower of Babel and a chronology with a, uh, of ten generations from Noah to the individual Abram, uh, known later in the Torah as Abraham. This is a story that goes from the universal and concludes with the particular with me this morning to discuss this well-known parasha is Rabbi Norman M. Cohn, 
Rabbi Cohn is the Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Beth Shalom in Minnesota, though now living a good part of his life in Arizona, as many of uh, the elderly do. Um, and he served that congregation for more than uh, 20 years, as the 40 years as the rabbi, as the rabbi, and um, grew that congregation from a small group of lovingly uh, committed worshipers to a large, important congregation in the Minneapolis area. He is known for his erudition and his great wisdom as a teacher. And so it's a joy to have a friend of mine with me this morning, Rabbi Norman Cohn. Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you, Rabbi Garden, and congratulations on uh, the growth of your uh, listenership. As uh, I understand, your, your, your show is listened to so many people and it's great to hear because you have so much to share with them. And thank well, you. Well, I think you. it's mostly due to our guests and their <laughs> wisdom. Um, this is a parasha that lots of people know of and remember from their childhood. I'm wondering if you have a childhood memory of this parasha before we look at it from a more adult rabbinic perspective. Well, I do. But uh, first of all, I want to. I want to commend you on that great summary of this long portion. You really covered it so beautifully. I loved it. Yes, when I was growing up uh, in the Pittsburgh area, there was a great amusement park that we used to go to. And one of the biggest features, one of the most significant rides for me at that young age was called Noah's Ark, where you went in and there was Noah and Mrs. Noah and animals. And you went through the ark and it rocked and you walked through it. It was just great. And I always had this powerful image of what Noah's Ark was. So when I heard the biblical story, I knew that it came from Kennywood Park. And uh, because I knew it appealed to children, as a rabbi and educator, I used to plan to take the kids on a bus to the zoo at this time of the year when we talked about the beginning of the Torah. And when we came to the Noah portion, the kids went to the zoo so they could also relate to the story. It's a, it's a wonderful children's story, but it's so much more than that. It's not just. Well, I, I mean, I want to thank you for helping our listeners uh, perhaps recall their own childhood experience with the literal story of animals going in two by two. And perhaps they remember the old song, Noah built the Arky Arky, um, <laughs> which was part of both Jewish tradition and Christian tradition and any tradition that found the biblical story story to be important. But as uh, with so much of the Torah and so much of the biblical text, it goes beyond simply the literal level, the childhood understanding. And in particular, you and I thought that Noah and the uh, flood had great resonance for all of us today during the pandemic. Um, we all, all of the listeners can recognize that the earth has been attacked by this unknown uh, virus, which has changed the very nature of our interaction with each other. 
And our rabbis uh, wrote a beautiful piece of Midrashic commentary, a story-like commentary, which perhaps you can share with our listeners. Um, if you are listening, um, this takes more than 30 seconds, um, but you should be used to, uh, given our 24 months of uh, life on the internet. So share this story with us, if you would. Thank you. Yes, it comes from the rabbinic commentaries, because every story in the Bible needs elaboration, explanation. They said that after the flood, Noah opened the ark, and we can picture this, and he looked out. He saw the earth desolate, forest and gardens uprooted, corpses visible everywhere. These are familiar pictures to us. There was no grass, no vegetation. The world was a wasteland. In pain and dismay, Noah cried out to God, sovereign of all creation. In six days, you made the earth and all that grows in it. It was like a garden, like a table prepared for a feast. Now you yourself have brought the work of your hands to naught, uprooting all that you planned, tearing down all that you built. Why did you not show compassion for your creatures? Well, God then replied, oh, faithless shepherd, now, after the destruction, you come to me and complain. But when I said to you, make an ark for yourself, for I'm going to flood the earth, destroy all flesh, you did not plead for your neighbors. How differently Abraham will act. He will pray on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Moses, when his people anger me with their calf of gold, will offer his life for them. But you, Noah, when you saw that judgment was about to strike the world, you thought only of yourself and your household, while all else perished by fire and water. And th this rabbi garden is what reminds us of today about what kind of an ark did we build? Was it big enough? Are we doing enough to stay safe and to bring this pandemic to an end? Because well, as you, were, as you were sharing with us the Midrash, this uh, story written by the ancient rabbis to um, help us understand the story of Noah beyond the very literal nature, the images of fire and flood for those who might be living on the West Coast, um, certainly the image of fire. And for those living in the Gulf region, the images of flood. And even on the East Coast of the United States or Western Canada, certainly understand fire and floods as uh, destructive elements that change the very fabric of our lives. And why do you think the rabbis wanted to uh, push the reader of the text beyond the literal level. Because we're comfortable thinking of animals and arcs and searching for archaeological evidence on Mount Ararat in Turkey. Um, but the rabbis didn't seem to find that um, as impactful as it might be to today's interpreters of the text. Right. I think that, I think that you know, many people want to find historical things that support the story. Oh, this really happened. Well, I think we sometimes miss the forest for the trees, as our teacher taught us in rabbinical school, when we concentrate on the literal meaning of the text. Yes, historically. Perhaps the story of Noah, which we find other stories in other literatures, was a reaction to explain the Ice Age, 
And when all the, you know, all the ice melted and there were floods. So what does this mean? And it wasn't necessarily a history book that the Bible was intended to be, although there's some history there. I think the history is what we find relating to what we're going through in our own lives, because in every generation, there, there are things that we can see. You know, you talked about the, the floods and the fires. Well, I think of the corpses everywhere. All of us saw in emergency rooms, at hospitals, corpses, you know, outside in tents because there wasn't any room. This picture is so contemporary for us. And, and yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I was simply going to say it's a vibrant uh, portrayal of the challenges we have, um, whether it is um, portraits of the corpses um, devastated by COVID um, in the United States, almost uh, 800,000 individuals have lost their lives um, to this virus. In Canada, not quite as many, uh, but certainly a significant number. Healthcare systems are challenged. And the Midrash seems to put the onus on us to do something about it, which is kind of interesting if you think about it, that the story is about God destroying the world, but in the rabbinic interpretation, it's what are you going to do to be the partner with God? I love the way you put that because um, I, I don't I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think that what the message of the story is um, is that this is what happens when people behave in a certain way. Remember, Noah is singled out as opposed to the like epic of Gilgamesh story. Noah is singled out because he's righteous because he's behaving in a meaningful way with his neighbors. You know, the world it says was filled with. Hamas, which is a word for violence and hatred. And I think what the story is telling us is this is what happens when we allow hatred to rule the world, when bigotry and discrimination, this is the world it leads us to, because we know that we have within our power lots of ways of dealing with, with this pandemic. We learned from uh, this, the pandemic 100 years ago, maybe, and there are things we can do. We can we can wear masks. We can get vaccinated. We can keep social distancing. We know that they work and we've seen results. And and this is what I think the story is telling us is that, and even the story at the end, God says, you know, when he has a rainbow, he, there's a rainbow. He says, this is a sign that I will never again destroy the world. But what God doesn't say is he doesn't say, I will stop you from destroying it. And I right. think that's a powerful message here. The, the story so eloquently speaks to what kind of communal responsibility we have to each other. Um, when the earth is destroyed, um, Noah is given and his descendants are given responsibility to start something new, which is not uh, narcissistic. And interestingly enough, when you raise this issue, um, before the chronology, we have this story of the Tower of Babel, in which, um, again, individuals seem to believe that their 
um, responsibility for communal uh, care is secondary to their personal needs. Um, and so what do they want to do? Um, they want to be God. They want to build a tower to the heavens so that they can be God. Um, it's kind of an interesting continuation as if the rainbow did not um, achieve its intended result. Uh, that's spot on. I think that what, what you're saying there is that um, the, the story is telling us we never learn. And there's folk songs. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Human nature is human nature, which is why we continue to need guidance from our particular religious traditions that try to help us be the best people we can be. It's, it's not human nature to just automatically learn and be perfect. We have to continue to strive to improve ourselves. And how do we do that? In our relationships with others. The, the Tower of Babel just shows right away that so soon they've already forgotten and they're going to build a tower and ignore what God is trying to teach us. Whether it's Jewish tradition, Christian tradition, Islamic tradition, so many of our religious traditions try to remind us of how to live a good life, how to be a good person. We all need help with that. Uh, I'm reminded as you were speaking of this image of the tower, which takes people away from where their feet are planted. Mm, yes. That the story of Noah is about being uprooted and then wanting to be replanted. A vineyard is planted um, as a sign that we are going to um, re-establish our presence. And then the story indicates how uh, individuals, having been replanted, want to leave this earth as if there's something better, more important uh, up there. Um, and so... I want to um, use your wisdom now in the Midrash that you read, um, where the story begins to make the transition to a more particularistic exposition of Noah. Um, the rabbis wanted to compare Noah to Abraham. And perhaps you can help the listener uh, understand why that was important to the ancient rabbis. Again, part of human nature is wanting our particular ethnic group um, or a religious faith group to have a special status, to, to, um, to have a, a chosenness, as it were. I think we see this culturally in every culture. Um, you know, I remember when the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding came out. And I was, as a Jew, fascinated with the idea that, wait a second, you know, we're not the only people who see ourselves as having special responsibilities and whatnot. The, the character in My Big Fat Greek Wedding was claiming that everything good in the world came from the Greek culture. And I found that so reassuring because I think there's a, in human nature, there's a particularistic yearning we all have at the same time, we know that things are universal, that we're, you know, we're no different than other people when it comes to being human beings. And we all have the same strivings, the same desires. And so 
this Midrash compares Noah and Abraham, because remember, with Noah, you have the destruction of the world, and I think the Tower of Babel proves it's impossible to do this on such a universal scale, having this covenant. And so the covenant narrows in the text. The next te- next covenant is going to be with Abraham, who comes soon afterwards. Okay, it doesn't work with the entire world. Let's try it with a particular people, see how that works, and then go from there. And we can see throughout history that many peoples have this special relationship with God, certainly Christianity and Islam, the monotheistic religions, and others as well. So there's this tension between particularism and universalism. We grow up in households and families. That's where we learn how to relate to the people outside of our homes. But you got to learn it somewhere, and that's where the particularism comes comes into play. So um, they want to say, you know, Noah... Yeah, he was righteous, but it says in the text, he was righteous in his generation, in his era, in among his people, because the people there were pretty bad. The world was filled with violence. Had he lived at the time of Abraham, our ancestor, eh, he would have been an average Joe. He wouldn't have been so outstanding. Abraham, of course, is, is a better example, because look at him. He looked out for other people. He argued on behalf of strangers in Sodom and Gomorrah when God wanted to destroy them. So there's this play going back and forth. And then in the in the in in the rabbis' discussions, some of them said, "Oh wait, don't get too particularistic. It would have been easier to be good in Abraham's generation when there were other good people, but Noah had to stand up when no one around him was any good, and that takes courage." So there's a great. Uh, tug of war in the in the stories. There. Right. It, it's interesting. Um, as you said, the text calls him Ish Tzadik Bedoroto, a righteous person in his generation. So does that mean he was the best of a bad lot? Or was he righteous in and of himself? And there's a tension there about what does that mean? And of course, um, as we think of all that's happening around us today, throughout the world, not just in our own small little Medina, our own small community, but what does it mean to be righteous? Um, Are you um, righteous simply because you're better than some other people? Or is there an essential definition of what constitutes righteousness? Um, And you reminded the listeners of how literal the story is. At the end of the story, Noah gets drunk. And there's some allusion to sexual impropriety. And so all that he's done... Is it to save the world or is it to save his family? Um, Is he really what might be called a God-fearing person who hears the commanding voice of the text? Or is he somebody who recognizes that, well, you know, if I do this, my family will be the new... um, progenitors of the world will be the new Adam and Eve. Um, But in the end, he just um, drinks the grapes. 
we, you know, this is another way that we identify with the text because we are all like Noah because it's natural to want to look first to save your family and to take care of your family. And I think what the text is saying, okay, that's a normal human reaction, but it's not enough. And it's not enough. Noah, you should have built a bigger ark. You know, you could have done that. Yes, you can take care of your family. That's what we, that's what we need to do, but move beyond that as well. And I think that's where the destruction of the world comes into play when we don't do that. So you've been teaching this story for nearly 50 years. And often you teach it, maybe primarily within the context of a Jewish community, and use the rabbinic wisdom of uh, antiquity and modernity to help you uh, suss out some of the hidden aspects of this story. Um, Some of our listeners, of course, come from other traditions, um, and some of our listeners may have learned this story in a more literal manner. Um, what What do you think that the rabbinic interpretation can add Uh, with regard to Noah's story, to those who want to read the Torah or the biblical text in a very literal manner. You know, there was an ark, and in the ark uh, floated for for 40 days and 40 nights, and as the text says, another 150 days until the waters calmed down. So for nearly 200 days, Noah and his uh, merry band of animals and family were in this uh, teva, this ark. Um, To those who want this story to be real and who are looking for some sort of archaeological proof or historical proof of the historicity of this story, What do you say to them when it becomes clear that Jewish tradition saw the story beyond the literal level? Well, I think seeing beyond the literal in the text is also a universal thing. You know, most most biblical scholars aren't Jewish. They're, They're Christian, they're Muslim, and they look at the text too. But there's a great hook in the story as a universal story. As you said before in your great summary, There's these laws called the Noahide laws that come out of this story. And those are universal basic laws about thou shalt not murder for the first time mentioned. Don't eat the flesh of living creatures. These are things that are basic human behaviors that we need to uh, obey. And the rabbis say they don't just apply to Jews. They apply to everyone. And this is something that brings us together Uh, something we share. We often talk about the commandments and um, commandments are important also to other religious faiths. Um, We each have our own set. A lot of them we share. Some are, most of the ritual ones are unique to each tradition, but but the ethical ones, the moral ones, these are things we can share as we look at these stories together. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a nice insight because while most of us look at the, um, fantastic overlay of an ark and a flood and take that away with us buried within the story even if we're literalists 
are these ethical values and these ethical imperatives that the text didn't end simply with the dove bringing the leaf uh, to Noah. That Noah gets off the ark, but at that moment, the divine presents Noah with um, the beautiful symbol of the rainbow, which is, as many of us know, uh, to be a symbol incorporating all people, and a set of laws that would bring all humanity together. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Norman Cohn of uh, Minnesota, uh, founding rabbi of Beth Shalom uh, in Minnesota, now in Arizona. I want to thank him for joining us. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of this morning's conversation on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. Shalom and have a good day. Behold.